Hi, this is James Devine, and I am an educator who has come out of the trenches. Listen in as my friend and colleague Dana Goodyear shares stories and tips from other educators who have come out of the trenches. Welcome to the Out of the Trenches podcast. This is Dana Goodyear. Thanks for listening. My next guest is Michael Fosberg. Chicago native Michael Fosberg has spoken at nearly a thousand high schools, colleges, government agencies, corporations, law firms, and not-for-profits since 2005, utilizing his award-winning autobiographical story told in the form of a one-man play as an entry point for meaningful dialogues on race and identity. He has collaborated with a number of professional diversity practitioners on programs to foster deeper dialogue in corporate settings and at educational institutions. His work with groups such as the Boeing Company, United Way Worldwide, PNC Financial Services, Procter & Gamble, and the U.S. Department of Treasury is reshaping the way organizations talk about race, identity, and diversity. Michael has been a frequent guest in the media speaking on these issues in his latest book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, offers readers seven important tools to engage in authentic dialogue. In 2011, he published his memoir, Incognito, An American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. And he's just launched a series of unique virtual e-learning programs utilizing his award-winning play as the entry point for delving into uncomfortable conversations. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Dana. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. Well, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and managed to crawl out. Yeah, well, it's funny. I I think about this. I've been thinking about this since we had an initial sort of pre-podcast conversation, and uh, I feel like I'm always in the trenches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like perhaps many of your listeners and many of the people you've interviewed, um, I, I, my trenches are slightly different in that I'm not in the classroom on a day-to-day basis, and so it's a little different for me than for others. But I am um, teaching constantly, and I am in as you have. Um, shared with your listeners through my bio, I'm in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field. And so that space um, encompasses a lot of different educational institutions from high schools. And well, actually, I've done worked with middle schools on up. And it also encompasses um, learning and training for corporations and government agencies, as you mentioned, and uh, military bases, not-for-profits. And so um, and in especially uh, this field, the the and speak, I'll, I'll use the abbreviation the DE and I again. It's diversity, equity, inclusion. The DE and I field, the DE and I space, is fraught with um, a lot of um, resistance at the moment. Let's call it that. Um, there's a lot of misinformation that's being propagated out there in regards to. Um, what it is. And there are, I will also say, there are also some practitioners who are utilizing methods that um, perhaps cause um, people to feel, um, well, as, 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 the, as they're passing laws, to p- make people feel uncomfortable. Um, although I would have um, uh, an issue with that, um, just in regards to there's plenty of things that make us feel uncomfortable and we still have to work through them. I remember being in school, I felt uncomfortable with math and science. So (laughs) 
you could feel uncomfortable with, you know, topics like that, just as yeah. you could feel uncomfortable with teaching about history or diversity and inclusion. So um, it's been a real um, eye-opening experience for me. I've been doing this for over 15 years and um, it's, it's still never ceases to amaze me um, uh, how people are um, cautious or they have trepidations about um, having conversations about race and identity. And again, it's something that we all have. We all, we all have some sort of race if we if we utilize or believe in or whatever the, the racial categories that we have. And we all have an identity of some sort in which yeah. um, we don't often um, share with others. And so um, trying to help people learn this um, can be fraught with, again, misinformation and um, bad guidance and whatnot. And I, I will also say that um, part of the problem with teaching this is that it's not a math or a science. There isn't a formula. You know, math, you, it's all laid out. It, you've got all these formulas, two plus two equals four, you know, the, all the formulas that you use, that was a very simple form, of course, but the formulas to use to um, teach math. And there are scientific formulas in which we use to learn science, but um, talking about race and identity, there's no formula for it. There's no yeah. one way to do it. And so it makes it more complicated, so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely understand being in the trenches at this point with the, uh that topic. And um, let's talk a little bit about um, why you think the diversity inclusion, inclusion training seems so dis, de, dis, divisive. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> right now, man, where, where do I start? Um, one of the things that's being perpetrated right now is this yeah. idea that we're teaching um, CRT, some people may have heard this, or critical race theory. And unfortunately, that has been weaponized. That theory has been weaponized by um, by people who really actually don't know what it means. It's mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a it's not a theory. It's not um, a science that's being taught to our children in middle schools, high schools, actually even in colleges, unless you are actually specifically searching out for critical race theory. You're not going to be taught critical race theory, what it actually is critical race theory, which is, again, I, I'm, maybe again, for, for listeners, it is a graduate course, usually a graduate course in the legal field that explores how laws have unintended consequences when they, when they revolve around issues of race. Um, again, that is not something that our children are being taught. Now, now they are being taught lessons about history, um, lessons about slavery, um, and lessons about racism. And those things um, are uncomfortable to talk about. And it seems to me that there are a good faction of people who are uncomfortable talking about them. Um, I've seen that over the 15 years I've been doing this. But I would also say that my guess is that it's not the students who are the most uncomfortable, it's the parents. Yeah. Parents are the ones who are making the the beef about it. I don't I, I mean, if, you, if if the kids are really uncomfortable about it, then let's hear about it. Let's well, let's mm -hmm. talk about it. That's the whole point. Let's yeah. talk yeah. about it. And I, I, I often say um, in my trainings that, you know, we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. 
And I know a lot of people are like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, why would I want to be comfortable being uncomfortable? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we probably are uncomfortable at some point every day. There's a point in our day when which we experience something that makes us uncomfortable and we work through it. Yeah. And so, like I said earlier, sort of jokingly, but actually seriously, I did find math and science uncomfortable at times. I worked through it. I didn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. We got we got through it. I wasn't. I was, those aren't my <laughs> those aren't my um, favorite topics or, or subjects that I studied in school, and I wasn't very good at them per se. But I got through it. Um, we can also get through this when we were, you know, through our history lessons about slavery, about racism, and uh, about these things. And I think we just need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the bottom line. Let's talk about your latest book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. Sure. And um, talk to me about some of the seven tools that educators can use from the book. Sure, sure. Well, I just mentioned uh, uh, one of them, which is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, so I don't know if I should, we, we, can, we, can, we can explore this later or whatever, my personal story, but the first tool uh, is tell your story. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a principle in uh, academia called intergroup contact theory. And I know that sounds very academic and very perhaps elitist to some people, I don't know, but it's actually a proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. We have more in common than we have different. And so we find that out, we discover that by sharing our stories. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, you have to walk up to a stranger that you know and say well i was born and blah 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 but you know i mean there are all different ways to share your story with people um you could start by just talking about hobbies that you have i mean even through hobbies we can uh, in interests we can discover something really important about a person something that they're passionate about and and then thus discover their story how they became passionate about that um, but anyway, the first tool is tell your story, open up and, and share your story. And we discover commonalities. The second tool is don't judge the differences. Mm-hmm. Now, we flip the script. Instead of allowing the differences to create a wall between us, start by finding a mutual interest and then embrace the differences. After all, mm-hmm. if, if we were all the same, we'd be bored. It's the differences that make us stand out as people, and it's the differences that make us unique in the marketplace. So that's the second tool. The third tool, and this is so key, this is key actually all across the educational field, is we have to recognize that there isn't one way to have a conversation about race and identity. Just like there's not one way to teach a particular topic or subject, there isn't one way to go about talking about race. If there was one way to do it, we'd all be doing it, <laughs> yeah. right? It'd make it a lot easier, but there's not. There are many different ways. We all have different experiences and therefore we bring those different points of view to the table. This actually the, the, the strength of our collective spirit of our diversity. Um, the fourth tool, which uh, I don't know, I, I keep saying this about each one. This is so important. <laughs> this one is equally as important. Um, especially in this day and age, is that we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable. 
we are very disagreeable in this world today and look where it's gotten us. We, we, we are now off into our camps. We are siloed, you know, whether it's by political ideology or religion or whatever it might be. And what I'm suggesting is that, yes, there are a, lot, there are a variety of different people with political ideologies, religions, thoughts, beliefs, whatever. We can discuss those things and we may not agree on them. But if we become disagreeable with on those topics, then the conversation stops. It's over. Once you become disagreeable with someone and you become angry or heated, that's it. Conversation's done. So I'm suggesting that we need to bring civility back to the conversation. We may not all agree on the way that we see the world, but if we start to become disagreeable with one another, we are in the mess that we're in today. It's it's mm -hmm. just we need to take responsibility for the language we use um freedom of speech which is a wonderful freedom that we have in, in the constitution freedom of speech carries responsibility none of us really think about the responsibility of the language that we use and we need to start taking responsibility for that number five the fifth tool is what i mentioned before get comfortable being uncomfortable the sixth tool is understand that there are realities outside of your own experience just because we may not have experienced i don't know racism or sexism or homophobia or age discrimination or disability indifference or some other form of discriminatory treatment doesn't mean that that's not a reality for other people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we need to understand that those are realities and listen with empathy and the seventh and final tool that I suggest in trying to have more meaningful, authentic conversations about race and identity is to practice forgiveness. It has been described as the hardest work you will ever do, but also the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are key to remember. Like, um, it's not an easy road to follow, but I think this is, like you said, it's, it's definitely important work that needs to be done. And, um, you know, something that we're moving towards in uh, schools today. Um, so I mentioned in the bio, you work with both uh, school systems and um, corporations. How do you, you approach your DE&I training and uh, why is this important um, both for the schools and corporations? So I guess this might be the place where we, <laughs> how do I approach it? Where we bring up my approach, which is very, very different from lots of people's approaches, mm -hmm. and, uh, which um, I'm going to, I'm just going to supply out. So I, again, we, you and I had a, a short conversation to prepare for this podcast today. And we talked about um, uh, in a particular state of the state of Florida, for instance, um, DE&I work is being outlawed, basically. They passed a law starting July 1st, which basically um, allows any um, parent or student or um, worker, employee of a corporation, a parent, student of a, a, a child at a, at, a, at a school to be able to sue that school or that corporation if they felt uncomfortable by any of the trainings or diversity and uh, inclusion work that those schools or, or corporations are doing. I would like to I would like to say that the work that I do would not make people feel uncomfortable because what I'm well there may be some uncomfortable in the room that I'm not aware of perhaps because of personal things but I'm again approaching it from a place of um this academic theory which we call intergroup contact theory and what I do is um I tell my own personal story 
And I tell it in a very unique way. I tell it in a way, um, well, I, I tell it as a one-man play. Over the course of about 45 minutes, I portray over a dozen different characters as I take the audience on a journey of my discovery to discover my biological father. So I was raised in a working class white family by my um, biological mother who was of Armenian descent and an adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent um, who adopted me when I was about five years old. Um, when I was in my early thirties, my parents uh, announced they were getting a divorce and I had realized that my parents had never told me anything about my biological father, nor, nor had I ever asked any questions. And so I went on a journey to discover my biological father armed with only his name and the last that he lived, last place that he lived, which was some 30 years prior, happened to be Detroit. So armed with that information, um, I went out to track him down and I discovered him in a first phone call. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Mm -hmm. So I, he, so as I said, um, my mother told me that some 30 years prior, he lived in the Detroit area. So that was my first, my first clue, I guess, if it's mm -hmm. a clue 30 years ago, what's to say he still lives in the Detroit area. I have no idea. So yeah. some listeners may remember phone books. <clears throat> I'm going <laughs> to date myself on that. Right. But uh, I was living in Santa Monica, California. At the time I went to the Santa Monica public library and libraries used to house phone books from different cities around the country. And uh, they happen to have a Detroit phone book there. And I, I got the Detroit phone book. I looked up his name. It's John Sidney Woods. I copied down all the names and numbers. There were about five or six listings that corresponded to that name. I copied them all down. I went home to my apartment, which was about the size of the screen that we're, we're um, talking on. And, uh, and I paced back and forth, just nervous, just not, not knowing what to say, like what to do. What, how would I know it was him? What if it wasn't none of these names were the guy? What should I do next? I finally got the courage. I picked up the phone. I dialed the first number on the list. And it turned out to be my father, the first phone call. And while we we're trying to wrap our heads around, you're my father, I'm your son. Out of the blue, he says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, okay, well, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else could there be? <laughs> and he said, well, um, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you and I've thought about you a lot. And I was just absolutely overjoyed. Like this is my father telling me for the first time in my life, my biological father telling me he loved me. And before I had a chance to sort of rebound from that, he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. And again, as I mentioned, I grew up in a white working class family thinking I was a white guy. Mm -hmm. when in fact, I'm a lot more than that. And yeah. that had been kept from me my entire life. And so he proceeded to tell me about my family history. My great, great grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. My wow. grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University is named after my grandfather. I mean, it went on and on and on. I kept, I was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Can we go back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap <laughs> the black part and you're giving me all this. 
So um, we we decided, of course, we'd stay in touch and we exchanged phone numbers, and uh, and that was my my initial door opening to my new identity, my new life. Um, my grandparents were still alive. Um, I, I talked to them for many years until they passed away. Um, my father and I had a relationship for a long time until he passed away, and. Um, all of this I tell, well, most of this I tell in this one man play called Incognito. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, I perform over a dozen different characters, about 45 minutes. And at the end of the play, I challenge the audience on, well, what race am I now? What, what box should I check off on applications? How do we go about looking at ourselves and looking at other people? And, and then when I finish the play, I, um, immediately go into facilitating an unpacking of all the topics the play exposes, like um, things like passing, which um, many people in the white community don't even know what passing is. Passing mm-hmm. was the ability for African-Americans with very light skin to pass as white and to receive the benefits of that, um, also referred to as white privilege for some, um, and, and all different other kinds of things, unconscious bias and all other kinds of topics that the play exposes. Mm-hmm. And then we unpack those things during a talk back. And that's how I go about doing the diversity training, utilizing storytelling, performance and dialogue with an audience to unpack and to explore how we look at ourselves and how we look at other people. And it's very, very different from, from what most people um, are used to or the standard or traditional um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Wow, that's quite a story. Like, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know when they're looking for a biological parent, you know, and that was something totally unexpected, but also to find out that you know, great grandparents, uh, great great grandparents were, um, you know, famous and practically yeah. famous, you know, in the Negro leagues and things like that. And, um, yeah. you know, so when you discover this new identity, how did it um, inform your journey going forward? Well, you know, well, first, first and foremost, of course, I started thinking about you know, why my mother, and then I subsequently learned my mother's family didn't share this information with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very angry with my mother initially. Um, keeping that fact, that element of your life, of your identity mm-hmm. um, apart from you for so long as, I, you know, I mean, some people may think, well, what does it matter? You're just a human being. But um, I think a part of that questioning goes into the fact that we don't really share a lot about our histories with one another and we don't actually know a lot about our histories we require our students to learn mm-hmm. american history it's a requirement in every school why well so that we can learn about who we are as a people and how we came about as the united states of america well that doesn't that's not just for the united states that that exists for us as well as individuals what role did our families play in United States, becoming the United States about in, in history, maybe some might be a small role and for others, it might be a larger role. And so history is obviously a very important aspect in which, um, again, we require our students to take. And, and oftentimes we don't know a lot about that. And so I think it's important for us as individuals to learn as much as we can about who we are, where we came from and, and that. Um, for me, it also brought up this this issue of, you know, what is race and why is race important or why isn't it yeah. important? And how do we go about talking about it? And again, like 
what race am I now? Am I white? Am I black? Am I passing? What what am I? Um, for listeners who can't see us, I'm a, I look like a white guy. So I walk through life. Most people who see me think I'm a white guy. And so I don't have to worry about. And, and this is a real thing. Like I, I have been in a department store uh, and shopping with a, an African-American friend of mine. And I have watched while the sales clerks have watched my friend, my black friend, the entire time he's shopping and haven't paid any attention to me. We've been dressed, wearing the same nice dress, you know, nice clothing. Um, we look the same, only he's black and I'm white. Why would they pay more attention to him than they would pay to me? Uh, I don't have to deal with that yeah. problem. I have white skin. Um, so these are the kinds of things I'm trying to challenge about our society is why do those things exist? And I'm and I think it's important for us to explore those things and talk about those things and try to see if there's a way for us to alter the again, whether for most of us, it's, it's unconscious biases that we have and to break those down so we, so that we can become a more inclusive society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like just giving it um, that presentation in a play really helps in terms of how, you know, people are able to better understand your story. And like you said, it's not something people are going to be um, uncomfortable with because of the way you uh, present it. Um, what is some of the feedback that you get after the uh, presentation and how do people usually move forward um, after your training? It has been phenomenal. I, I mean, I, I've been doing this for 15 years, Dana. It's been a, an absolute honor, I guess is the only way to put it, to be able to to travel around the country. I, I, Pre-pandemic, I probably did between 50 and 60 presentations a year. So you know, I'm on the road a lot. I'm traveling and I'm going like, like I said, from middle schools to high schools, to colleges, to corporations, to government agencies, uh, law firms, not-for-profits, all different, a wide variety. And again, as you also pointed out, doing it in the form of a play allows people to, uh, you know, an entry point that makes them feel safe and non-threatened and it's entertaining. There's lots mm -hmm. of laugh lines in the play. It gives people entertainment. So it's kind of like watching your own little Netflix miniseries or, I don't know, whatever streaming device you use, HBO Max or whatever it might be. And so it, it just really opens people up in a way that, um, I don't know, speeches or lectures or workshops are, are, are don't it's just it's very inviting and so it's it's given me um a platform to allow people to express um all kinds of things i i've had people come up to me and just tell me the deepest darkest secrets that are in their families i've mm -hmm. had people come up to tell me all kinds of stories about their families um white black multiracial disabled gay straight um trans all kinds of people come up because it opens them up to tell their story. Again, yeah. we have more in common than we have different. Why are we letting the differences push us apart when we have more in common? And so it really brings people together in that way. And I, the, the response has just been you know, phenomenal in that respect. I, on the same hand, I do wanna say that, and I say this at every training session, I know that most of the people in that room that day are going to walk out of that room feeling inspired 
Um, they're going to want to share it with their friends. They're going to want to talk about it with their colleagues, with their, with their classmates. They're going to want to talk about it with their family. But I also know that there are going to be a few people, maybe one, maybe more, who are going to walk out of that session thinking, oh, that was a waste of my time. Because we don't all, and, and as educators, we should know this, we don't all read the same book and walk away with the same message. Mm -hmm. So just like that, um, even though my 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 play, again, is this is this big door opener for people, inviting them in, there are mm -hmm. sometimes going to be people who won't take that invitation to, to, to step inside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you provide all the opportunities, but it's that individual's uh, decision, right? And That's you right. know, the way you're doing it is definitely that non-threatening way. So let's uh, move over to talking about your book. And sure. um, in the book, um, so you have the incognito. So first of all, you wrote your initial book um, that um, that was uh, published. How long ago was your first book? Published? Uh, in 2011, Incognito, okay. American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. That's the memoir. Yeah. Okay. And that's what you developed into the play. Yes. Yes. I started, I started to write the book. Um, I didn't, I, I mean, I was an actor. I was a trained actor. I went to school for theater and graduated with a bachelor of fine arts. And uh, it didn't occur to me to turn it into a play at first. I was trying to write a book about it. I, I'd never written a book before, but I thought it would yeah. make a really interesting book. And then I was asked to read some of the stories in front of a group of people. And after I read them, uh, that night, these people came up to me and they said, oh, you should be doing this. This is really great. You should be doing it. I said, yeah, I am. I'm yeah. writing the book. No, no, no. You should be performing it. And so then it turned into a performance. And then it took me 10 years to finish the book. Wow. <laughs> so I finally finished the book and, and published it in 2011, uh, uh, which uh, um, folks can get it at the website, incognitotheplay.com. Um, and, and then... As I was, you know, continuing to tour around the country and um, sell books and promote this idea of intergroup contact theory, um, I noticed all of these things that were happening around me at these different mm -hmm. places, how people felt so awkward about talking about race and, and identity and whatnot. And so that's when I came up with the set of tools and I decided to write a second book. Again, nobody wants to talk about it, which sort of lays out all these tools and all of these different situations in which I came across and how I arrived at the tools. So it had gone about, um, so you said this one was published in 2011 and then your right. latest book was just published um, in 2022? Actually in 2020. Okay, so a few laughing, years ago. I'm laughing because it happened right at the beginning of the pandemic, which is yeah. not, not a good time to publish a book, but whatever, that's, that's, yeah. that's what happened. Yeah, but just kind of looking at the context, how you, know, you traveled around with this play, um, you'd been bringing up these conversations uh, before it became so spotlighted in our media in the past couple of years. And, you know, you kind of look back on writing of both of the books and performing your play uh, kind of now with this lens of, you know, the let's call them controversies that some people are saying, you know, with, uh, you know, thinking that it is critical race story, which you very well outlined is something totally different. But yeah, it's very interesting to to see kind of like, the timeline as to when when this took place. Yes, yes. Well, I was, I was. I both books are are self published. Um, mm. The second book, um, I was getting ready to send it to the the printers because they're not 
they're not digital. They're actually really nice quality printing and beautifully laid out all that. Anyway, I was getting ready to send it to the printers. And at the same time, I was watching the news and we were, we were going into lockdown. And I thought, oh, man, this is not a good time to publish a book. So I, I paused. I put a pause on everything. And I had a publicist who I've been working with over a number of years. And, and she totally understood. She was like, yeah, perhaps we should stop you know this. So I, I don't know how I'm going to get traction for you know people to get interested in the book. And then um, George Floyd happened. And uh, she called me up immediately, my publicist, and she said, oh, you need to publish it now. <laughs> That's how it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've had a great conversation around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training, how you approach that, and how um, some of the organizations that take your training can use the tools. Out of everything we talked about, uh, what's one thing you'd like listeners to remember? You know, I say this, um, I think it's probably the last thing I say after at, at the end of every session. Um, we each have a role to play in how we go about um, creating a society in which we live in, which we want to live mm -hmm. in, which we want to be proud of and be a part of. Um, and what I want to say to people is um, silence gives consent. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things being said by people or done by people, which um, are not great. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know, I can say a lot worse words than that, but that that we disagree with or that you can see cause people agitation or are uncomfortable. There are things, you know, I've been present in a room where someone, somebody has said something that made me incredibly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to speak up, speak up and let people know you're not and and do so from a place of respect. Yeah. Again, if you, if you do so from a place of anger or disagreeableness or whatever, you're never going to forge any kind of uh, conversation or civility. And even speaking up, you from the, the the best place of respect, you may not forge any kind of civil civility with the person who is acting or saying something wrong. But at least you are letting them know that this is not the way we should go about um, creating a, a, a world in which we all want to live in. People are using language that is offensive and demonizing uh, all across the spectrum, race, religion, political, all of these things. I mentioned this earlier, but unless we speak up and let people know that that's not the way to go, that we need to forge more connections, that we have more in common than we have different. So if if I would leave your listeners with anything, I, I, I urge them to speak up. Don't be silent. Yeah, that's so important. Where can people connect with you and find you online? <laughs> well, I, I mentioned the website earlier, incognito the play, all one word, incognito the play.com. Uh, is a place you can find me. You can buy books there. You can see where I'm traveling to and giving speeches, sometimes uh, speeches, performances. Sometimes they're open to the public, not too often, but sometimes. Um, I am not on social media. I do not mm -hmm. believe in Facebook or Twitter. I find them to be divisive and they are doing very little to keep angry, mean, um, hate groups mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. off their platforms. And if I am a person who is encouraging people to have conversation and dialogue, it's not going to be had on those platforms. And so I just have, it's, it's hurt my business, I'm sure, and hurt people's ability to find out more about my work. But I really believe strongly in it. We are contemplating <laughs> going on Instagram. My assistant is encouraging me to do so, although it's owned by Facebook. So I'm, I'm feeling a little weird about that. But I, we may end up on Instagram soon. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't know who else is on LinkedIn. You can find me there. But um, the website, you can reach me there. You can write me there. Um, that's the best place to to, to find me. I'm also, um, I have a podcast um, in which I am interviewing people who are from a variety of different fields. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm exploring what kinds of methods and practices they use to bring people mm-hmm. together, whether it's, I don't know, in a restaurant or a healer or a, a diversity trainer or whatever it might be. Um, so we did our first um, group of 10 interviews and we're getting ready to, to release another group of 10 um, sometime after Labor Day. And that's Incognito, the podcast. Okay. And you can find me on any of the podcast platforms. Great, great. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the Out of the Trenches podcast today and finding out more about your writing and your play and your trainings. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Dana. Great to talk with you and your listeners. Check out the show notes on danagoodyear.com to learn more about this guest and links to their social media. Please subscribe share, rate, and review wherever you download this podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about it. And if this episode resonates, especially with you, be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at Out of Trenches PC.